morning. My name's Brad. I'm part of the staff team here at our Attridge site, and I've been asked to walk us through this first section of 1 Peter as we continue in our Opportunity in Exile series. And uh, after Easter, so we're going to take a break over the next couple of weeks for Palm Sunday and Good Friday and Easter Sunday. And then we're actually going to come back and we're going to spend a few more weeks looking at the remainder of First Peter and how this uh, kind of plays into this uh, Opportunity in Exile series we've been looking at. But before we start, I need to be upfront with you. I have struggled with this introduction to First Peter. And as I've been working through it, sometimes when you get into a passage and you're preparing to speak and you begin working through it, the words start to flow and you quickly figure out, this is how I'm going to approach this. I, I got an idea of how to do this. And as I worked through this, it just didn't seem to sit right. And the more I worked at it, the more I struggled with putting it together. I think that in 20 years or of pastoring, this is maybe the toughest teaching I've had to put together. Let me try to explain to you why. As, as I went through and looked at what some of the commentaries give as the purpose for the letter of First Peter, this is what I read. So one of them said, Christians in many countries are so used to repression, hostility, and even downright persecution that they almost come to expect it. For them, First Peter's a tremendous practical help that accepting suffering is allowed by the Lord and is beneficial in producing certain desirable qualities such as perseverance. And so I went to another commentary, and this is how they described the purpose of the letter that we find First Peter. It said, Peter is addressing the Christians scattered about the cities of the northeast province of Asia Minor, present-day Turkey, who were being hounded and persecuted throughout the empire because of Nero's proclamations against them. So the apostle Peter writes to encourage and embolden them to face the deadly persecution of the Roman state. And finally, one more I looked at, it describes the purpose of the letter this way. It says, First Peter was written to Christians who were experiencing various forms of persecution. Men and women who stand for Jesus Christ made them aliens and strangers in the midst of a pagan society. This epistle is a unique source of encouragement for all believers who live in a conflict with their culture. And as we begin to work through First Peter, as we begin to, uh, to look at this, this letter we see references from Peter himself about what people were facing. So in chapter 2, we read this. It says, Be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors. Then, even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your honorable behavior, and they will give honor to God when he judges the world. And so we see that the Christians in this time were facing slander from the community around them. In chapter 3, we read this. Keep your conscience clear. Then, if people speak against you, they will be ashamed when they see what a good life you live because you belong to Christ. In the next chapter, in chapter 4, we read, If you are insulted because you bear the name of Christ, you will be blessed. For the glorious Spirit of God rests upon you. It is no shame to suffer for being a Christian. Praise God for the privilege of being called by his name. So as we read through this, it's clear that the Christians of this time who are scattered throughout Rome are facing opposition to their faith. They're facing slander and ridicule. They're facing discrimination. And as we look at history of the time, we also realize that this persecution has also entered into the realm of physical persecution. They're being beaten. They're being persecuted in various ways. And so here's my struggle in preparing for today. 
I actually don't sense that much persecution from our culture right now. And as I've been studying and reading and immersing myself in 1 Peter, it kind of felt to me like I was reading a letter that was addressed to somebody else. That it was reading a letter that wasn't meant for me. A couple of weeks ago, Pastor Dale spoke, and he, he talked to us about the difference between loss of privilege, which I do think we're experiencing in our country, and persecution. And so there was a difference between these two cultures. And that's one of the tensions that I'm struggling with in preparing today. To be true to the text, this text that we're going to look at is talking about how we respond when we're persecuted for our faith. And I wonder if there's many of us here today who are actually facing trials because of our faith. Are there ways that we're currently being persecuted because of our belief? Or are we simply losing privileges in our country? Things that we feel kind of entitled to receive and are being taken away from us. As I think about this, I began actually thinking about my grandfather. When my grandfather was a teenager, he had been staying and working with another family and had been going to church with them, and he felt a strong call of the Holy Spirit to turn over his life and to follow Jesus. And after a period of a few weeks, he, he decided he would do that. And then he felt the call in his life to be baptized. And a few months later, in a small rural church he was attending, they, they said they were going to have a baptism in a couple of weeks, and you needed to sign up. And he was the first one at the front to sign his name to be baptized. And even while he was putting his name on that list, the thought went through his head, I sure hope my father does not hear about this until after it happens. And the very next day, he heard a horse and buggy pulling up to where he was staying, and out steps his father. And he said, what is this ridiculous thing I've heard about you going and being baptized? And a few moments later, he gave the ultimatum. If you follow through with this, never cross the door of my house again. And those were the last words his father spoke to him. And a few weeks later, my grandfather was baptized. And as I think about this, I realize that he certainly faced opposition that was directly related to following Jesus. He faced a sorrow and a grief and trials that were placed on him because of following Jesus. And I think there are probably people in this room who've actually paid a very high price to follow Jesus and to become one of his disciples. But I'm also guessing that there are others here who probably feel like I do. Others in this room who resonate with the way that I'm feeling right now. That following Jesus really hasn't been that high of a price for me to pay. When I think about following Jesus, I think of the price that Jesus paid to allow me to follow, not the price that I have to pay. Don't get me wrong. I realize we all face trials. That at times we all face suffering, we have grief, we have discomfort. We all face those things in our life, but I think for the majority of people in this room, and I could be wrong, those trials and suffering aren't directly related to our choice to follow Jesus. If anything, as we face the trials and suffering and sorrows and grief of this world, our faith in Jesus is what gives us strength. It's our way through, not the cause of it. And so as I've been wrestling with this and working through this and trying to figure out how to approach this passage, this week, uh, actually on Friday, I had a conversation with one of our international workers. 
who has been working in a country where persecution for your faith is real and happens many times in very brutal and horrible ways. And we started talking about this, and and he started talking about the difference between what it was like there and what it is like here in Canada. And as we spoke about this, he talked about this idea of losing privilege and persecution that Dale talked about. But he put it in a little bit of a different light for me, and this for me was really helpful, and I'm hoping that for you here today this might be helpful as well. He said, rather than thinking of these two concepts as being different, loss of privilege over here and persecution over here, he said, just think of them as opposite sides of a spectrum. And at any given time, we may be moving at different points in this spectrum between loss of privilege from our culture and persecution from our culture. He also said that as we move amongst this spectrum... At any point, what you're facing will probably feel to you like persecution. It doesn't matter if you're in, like some of these other countries, we have a team that's just coming back from Asia right now. And they have seen firsthand the kind of persecution that that Christians are facing there. And they're way over on this side of the spectrum. And for me right now, I'm probably way over on here, and I'm looking at these various things that privileges we've had in our society that are being removed, and the government's changing this policy or that policy, and and little things are coming back. I'm I'm somewhere over here, but no matter where we are on this spectrum, when you face it, it feels like you're being persecuted. And he said that's not a bad thing. Because if we're on this side of the spectrum, we can use those circumstances, those opportunities to grow and prepare, because chances are at some point in our life we'll be moving closer and closer towards uh, more severe persecution. He also told me, don't think of it like there's a point that you cross where on this side it's, it's not persecution, but then as soon as you step over here, it is. There's no clear line of when you cross that. It's just somewhere placing yourself on the spectrum. And to me, that was really helpful. Because as I look at this passage... And as I work through this passage, I can now look at this going, okay, well, maybe for me, this is more of a time of preparation with what I'm facing. And there are things that I can glean and find and apply from this passage that can apply to my life. And so just before we dig into 1 Peter, I'd just like to take a moment and pray. Heavenly Father, as we come before you right now, I think right now of those Christians around the world who are paying a price for their faith that I will never understand, or at least at this point in my life, I don't understand. And we pray for those people around the world right now. And I pray that you would give them strength, that you would embolden them in their faith, that you would give them perseverance. And for us here in Canada, as we are trying to learn how we can live in a culture that is different from our beliefs, I pray that you give us wisdom as to how that we should be interacting with the community you place us in while still living a life that reflects the beliefs that we have in you. And as we look at this passage, I pray that you would allow these words to come alive to us and impact our hearts today. Amen. So we dig into the letter of 1 Peter. And the beginning of the letter starts in in this day of writing. You start by identifying who you are and who you're writing to. And so that's what we find in the first two verses. 1 Peter 1, verses 1 and 2. This letter is from Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. I'm writing to God's chosen people 
who are living as foreigners in the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. God the Father knew you and chose you long ago. And his spirit has made you holy. As a result, you've obeyed him and have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. May God give you more and more grace and peace. So Peter identifies himself as the author of this letter. And then he addresses who it's written to. And he says, I'm writing this to the foreigners who are scattered. And he lists these various provinces of Rome. The foreigners who are scattered about. Some translations describe them as the scattered ones or the refugees. In some translations, they talk about the exiles. This letter is written to people who are learning how to live a life that is counter to the culture that they're surrounded by. To live a life that is is totally different than those around them. And people who are being opposed and persecuted because of that. We too are living as foreigners or as exiles in a foreign land. Philippians 3.20 tells us, but we are citizens of heaven where the Lord Jesus Christ lives and we are eagerly waiting for him to return as our savior. That's what this series is all about. That's what we're walking through through these past weeks and in the weeks to come. It's exploring how we are to live as disciples of Jesus in a culture that doesn't understand what that means and growing in growing ways in a culture that actually opposes what that means. I also really love the picture of the Trinity that Peter paints in these first two verses. In verse 2, he says, God the Father knew you and chose you long ago, and his Spirit has made you holy. And as a result, we have obeyed him and have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. We see this beautiful picture of the Trinity, this full completeness of the persons of God working together. And to me, that was just an encouraging uh, thing to see in this passage. I also like the way that Eugene Peterson paraphrases this introduction in the message. He says, I, Peter, am an apostle on assignment by Jesus the Messiah, writing to exiles scattered to the four winds. Not one is missing. Not one forgotten. God the Father has his eye on each of you and is determined by the work of the Spirit to keep you obedient through the sacrifice of Jesus. May everything good from God be yours. Even while we're living in a way that's counter to our culture, we are not alone. We are not forgotten. He is traveling with us. Imagine what this would have meant to the people that he was writing to. Peter ends these two verses by praying a prayer of blessing and grace upon them. And following the introduction, he begins to describe this promise of hope and inheritance that is awaiting each one who puts his faith in Jesus. In verses 3 to 5, we read, All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is by his great mercy that we've been born again because God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Now we live with great expectation and we have a priceless inheritance, an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you, pure and undefiled beyond the reach of change and decay. And through your faith, God is protecting you by his power until you receive the salvation, which is ready to be revealed on the last day for all to see. When we choose to become disciples of Jesus, we are born again. We have a new life. In a couple of weeks on Easter Sunday, we'll be celebrating extravagantly this new life that is offered to us in Jesus Christ through his death and resurrection. We are adopted into his family. 
We have an inheritance waiting for us, an inheritance that includes spending eternity in the presence of Jesus. This inheritance is part of our salvation. It's part of this deliverance from the consequence of sin that we receive when we believe in Jesus Christ. Peter explains that no matter what we face, no matter what our circumstances, no no matter what the opposition or persecution, no matter how dark the valley, no one can ever take away this inheritance that has been given to you. It is beyond the reach of change and decay. Ray Stedman has said, uh, the reason the experience of the new birth is so important is not only because we have a hope of heaven when we die, but we have a living hope to carry us through this life. This promise we read about not only gives us hope for the future, and often we think about that, we think about this future inheritance we will receive of eternal life with Jesus, but it also gives us hope here today in whatever we're facing. Hope is a very powerful condition. A few years ago, I watched the film Unbroken. Some of you may have seen it. And it tells the ordeal and odyssey of Louis Zapparini, who's an Olympic runner who was brutalized as a prisoner of war in Japan. And I won't spoil it. If you haven't read the book or seen the movie, I won't spoil it to say in the end he makes it home. And I found an article written in a psychological journal by a psychologist reflecting on his story. And this is what the psychologist wrote. And and again, remember, this isn't in some Christian magazine talking about the hope of God. This is in a secular psychological journal. It said this. There is no way he should have made it home, but he did. There were plenty of trials and tribulations that could have made him give up. But the worst, in my mind, was the kill order. Zapparini was sick, starving, and being tortured by a sadistic guard they called the bird. And with small acts of defiance, he was able to persevere, or to, to preserve his dignity and persevere. But then he learned that if Japan surrendered, or if the camps were about to be liberated, all prisoners would immediately be killed. The kill order made the struggle pointless. Even if he manages to survive illness and starvation and torture, he would be killed before he could ever be rescued. But Zapparini was sustained by an irrational hope that he would somehow make it home again to his parents' small home in Torrance, California. In a hopeless situation, Zapparini had hope. The proportions of Zapparini's hope are impressive indeed. Yet anyone who has ever felt hopeless can identify. For many people who've struggled with depression or addiction, there have been times when it it has seemed there's no way to continue living and and there's no reason to think that things could ever change for the better, and yet we find strength in a vision of hope. We make it home beaten and scarred, but unbroken. If Zapparini could find that kind of hope, that irrational hope, even before he knew Jesus, imagine how much more hope we can have in situations that are placed upon us, knowing that we have the the support of Jesus, knowing that we have this inheritance, knowing that God is with us. In fact, in verse 5, we're told that God is protecting us here and now in this life, no matter what we face. God is protecting us with his power. What more could we ask for where you're being protected by the power of God? It's an amazing promise of hope that is given to each one of us. 
We are being guarded through faith until the fullness of salvation is revealed to us. No matter what the trials we face, we find our strength in this promise that we've been given a new hope, a new identity in Christ, and we have been adopted into his family. Just think how this promise would resonate with the recipients of this letter. People that have been dispersed and scattered throughout Rome. People that are facing opposition. They're facing slander and ridicule and persecution for their faith. And Peter tells them, you have a new identity in Christ. You are part of a family. You've been adopted in. Don't lose hope. Before we continue into the next couple of verses here, I think it's important for us to have a really quick history lesson. I know for some that's exciting, and for some you're like, oh, no. But th- th- we need to know a little bit of the history of Rome here before we go on. And it's mostly about the great fire of Rome. In 64 AD, a fire breaks out in Rome. And in over the next number of days, two-thirds of the city is burnt to complete annihilation. Most of the inhabitants of Rome are now homeless. The economy has been completely devastated. And many historians believe that Emperor Nero actually purposely set the fire. He had a plan in place that he wanted to actually remove a number of this, uh, a portion of Rome in order to build palaces and statues and monuments in his own honor. And when he put forward his plan, it was turned down and they said, you can't do this. You can't just wipe out part of the city. And so historians actually believe that he purposely set this fire and from up on a hill watched and celebrated as he saw Rome burn. But the people were enraged, understandably. They were getting to the point of revolution and Nero realized all of a sudden that he needed a scapegoat. And so he told the city that a group that called themselves Christians were responsible for the fire. And because Romans were already suspicious of the Christians, we already heard how they'd already been being persecuted, being slandered, being spoken out against, it didn't take much for Nero to convince the Roman world that Christians were responsible for this fire. And with the support of the Roman people, Nero begins a systematic persecution of the Christians that continued for decades to come. Now, we've already heard that they were being persecuted in some ways, but this was the start of a large-scale, systematic, brutal persecution of Christians. This is the time when Nero was actually dipping Christians in tar and burning them as lanterns in his gardens. He was throwing them to the lions. They were being used as entertainment in gladiator games. So this history of Nero becomes important context of understanding 1 Peter Because scholars believe 1 Peter was written somewhere between 63 and 66 A.D. And Rome burnt in 64 A.D. And persecution began to ramp up and continue to expand after that. And at first I found it a little bit troublesome that we couldn't actually pick where exactly this book was written in that timeline. And then I realized it's actually helpful. Because some scholars believe that 1 Peter was actually written before the persecution started to ramp out. A year or so before this all happened. And they believe 1 Peter was written primarily as a book to prepare Christians for what they were about to face. And to give them words of comfort and preparation for what was coming. 
Other scholars believe strongly that this book was written afterwards and was written as an encouragement for what they were going through. And the reason I find this encouraging is no matter where we are in this spectrum between losing privilege and persecution, the book actually does apply to us. When I read through this and thought, this book isn't for me, I actually realized, actually, this book does apply to me. For me, it's more of a preparation. For me, it's finding the words that I need so that when I face stronger and stronger persecution and opposition from the country I live in, I can be prepared on how to deal with that. For other people, even in this room, this may be something that you're walking through right now, and this is actually practical advice to how you can deal with what you're facing at this very moment. And so then we read through verses 6 and 7, where Peter begins to give us some wisdom as to what to do when we face these times. And he starts by saying, So be truly glad. There is wonderful joy ahead, even though you have to endure many trials for a little while. These trials will show that your faith is genuine. It's being tested as fire tests and purifies gold. Though your faith is far more precious than mere gold. So when your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. Peter frames this discussion of facing trials and opposition in the context of joy and gladness. He promises joy even in the midst of that with which we must endure. And as I thought through this and read through this, I think there are at least three lessons that I can learn from 1 Peter on facing opposition because of my faith. The first lesson, I think it's important for us to realize that persecution in the life of the Christian isn't a bad thing. It's not something that we should try to avoid or stay away from. It's actually something we should probably expect. Peter, in his letter, never instructs us us on ways that we can avoid opposition, ways that we can avoid the hurt and the trouble. Living as disciples of Jesus was never meant to be about our comfort. I think that's something that in North American culture we've started to buy into. That following Jesus would provide us with comfort and blessings and rewards. And yet that's not really, when we look biblically, that's not the purpose of our faith. We are meant to live counter to a culture that believes in putting ourselves first. That believes in our comfort and our happiness. In fact, in James we're told, Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow, for when your endurance is fully developed, you'll be perfect and complete, needing nothing. This is one of the ways that we can live counter to our culture. This is one of the opportunities we have in the exile that we face. Our culture is built around finding ways to avoid trials, avoid pain, to avoid being uncomfortable. And this is not the way that we as Christians have been instructed to live. Our culture tells us that we should fight for our rights, fight for our privileges, fight for what is ours. But we are called to live counter to that culture. We are called to see the opposition we face as an opportunity, and an opportunity for great joy. 
Persecution for our faith is not something that we should fear, but something that we should expect. And as we begin to live with this perspective of being exiles, maybe we need to view this loss of privilege or this opposition to our faith in a new way. I believe, whether it's correct or not, that the world more and more sees Christians as people who are always out trying to fight for their beliefs and to fight for what they want. I've talked to people who say the only time they see Christians in the news is when they are protesting something that they're unhappy with. Last week, Pastor Maureen spoke about Jonah and raised the question of what would it look like for, if we loved the people around us even when they don't reflect our views, even when they don't reflect what we believe. And so I asked, what would it look like if our first response to opposition or persecution was, how can I love this person? How can I love this person? How can I show the love of Jesus to them? I spoke a little earlier about Louis Zapparini, the prisoner of war in Japan. Later in his life, he actually becomes a follower of Jesus and does amazing works for Jesus with the last years of his life. And this is how he showed love to those who had persecuted him while he was a prisoner of war. He made it his goal to meet each and every guard that had held him captive, who had tortured him and had beaten him. And to offer them forgiveness. And this is how what he wrote about this experience. He said, My forgiveness was so authentic and total that I looked forward to seeing each of them. I longed to look into their eyes and say, Not only I forgive you, but to tell them of the greatest event of forgiveness the world has ever known. When Christ on the cross, at the peak of his agony, could say to his executioners, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Do we see persecution as an opportunity to share the love of Jesus with those around us? To share his love with those who are opposing us and persecuting us? Secondly, because of the inheritance and protection promised to us in the previous verses, we can actually face trials with this unusual joy, only possible through his Holy Spirit. Peter is talking about the quiet kind of joy that fills our hearts simply because we know Jesus and who he is. It's not a joy based on our circumstances. It's, a based, on, uh, it's based on who Jesus is. Finally, I think we can find comfort knowing that the suffering that we face is not without purpose. The suffering and opposition we face proves that our faith is genuine. When conditions are good and following Jesus has no opposition, it's easy to follow. But when we face opposition to our faith and are left with suffering and persecution because of it, casual followers begin to drift away. They begin to leave. They begin to think, this isn't what I signed up for. And those that remain are those whose faith was genuine. And the reward for this genuine faith, we're told in this passage, is praise and glory and honor from God. What a reward. When we are tested and tried and we prove that our faith is genuine, God puts upon us praise and glory and honor. So as we go out this week, I encourage you to consider ways that you can live a life that is counter 
to the culture that we live in. A life that reflects your discipleship of Jesus. And if you were ever placed in the situation where you face opposition or even persecution for your faith, I pray that you'll be able to do so in a way that allows you to love those people. Are you willing to suffer for your faith if required to do so? Are you willing to extend the love and grace and forgiveness of Jesus to those that stand in opposition to you?